You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Fathers, we open your word this morning. It's a very daunting and challenging passage of your death on the cross. Yet, what a refreshing thing to know that the death was for our sake. God, would you transform us now into the likeness of Jesus? May we see Jesus this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to look a little bit with the, at the passion of Christ that we just read. Uh, there's 49 verses here, and so if we take a minute per verse, we should be out by about two this afternoon. You guys okay with that? I'm just kidding, just kidding. Um, I do want to look at this in, in the kingly state and what Jesus is. Uh, I've affectionately titled this, Once a King, Always a King. If we begin in verse 32, about midway through the Passion, we see this compassion of a king is rivaled by no one before him and no one after him. Again, this scene is something that most of us, if you've been in church, you know it all too well. It's not an easy scene to digest as we see Jesus, who indeed claims to be the king of the Jews and even more, the king of all ages. The problem lies for me in the fact that this king of ours is not depicted at all like a king should be. In fact, instead of a crown of jewels, he's given a crown of thorns. Instead of a deserving throne here on earth, he's given a wooden cross to hang humiliated in front of anyone who wished to see him. Prior to our full knowledge of that, in the book of Luke, we see the king, Jesus, hanging between two criminals. In two two of the other gospels, we're told that they are thieves. These thieves most likely had been on death row for months, facing an impending doom on the cross, well-deserving of their punishment of the time due to their crime committed. And there we have Jesus hanging in the middle of them. They both desired salvation from the cross, but oh, how they differed in the way that they communicated that to Jesus. Luke will come back to that part of the scene in just a moment, as we will. But I want to look first at the magnitude of the statement that Jesus uttered just prior. And that is this in verse 34. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. If we can unpack that verse for just a minute, you'll find it has huge implications for us. At first glance, it would appear that Jesus has misspoken. Maybe he should have said, forgive them, for they know exactly what they're doing, and yet they continue in spite of that. But that's not what he says. He, in essence here, is asking forgiveness for the ignorance of those who do this evil deed. In other words... These people have so much evidence of the truth that the only explanation for their ignorance is they don't want to see it. They're hard and resistant and they have a guilty blindness and that is why they need forgiveness. Sound familiar as we justify our own sins? I don't know about you, but I like to look at the person beside me and go, well, I'm not as bad as that guy or not as bad as she is, not doing all the bad things she's doing. I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Have you ever seen the movie Fun with Dick and Jane where Jim Carrey's character in that movie, he's, a C, he's, he's part of a company and he's desiring this promotion and he finally gets the promotion to vice president of communications and he's given a corner office and a big raise. 
And on the same day, without any briefing whatsoever, he's asked to go on a popular TV show for money and stock market. And as they're interviewing him, he's oblivious to what's going on in the company. He's been the, the vice president of communications for about 25 minutes. And they ask him, what do you say about the CEO of the company and the selling of all of his stock to cash in? Not knowing anything about the situation, Jim, character, Jim Carrey's character says, well, that can't be true. You can have all the evidence you want. You can look through all of our paperwork. You can see that the company is doing just fine. And he begins to sweat. And then you see a split screen where the stocks are plummeting for the company. And then he finishes the interview, goes out and looks among the office and everybody is frantically grabbing every piece of paper that they can find to shred it or to burn it so that there is no evidence for indeed it was true what he had been asked, but he had no idea. His, he was guilty of ignorance. He knew nothing about the allegations and because of it, he lost everything. He lost his job and the company goes under. What Jesus does in one sentence is he pronounces guilty upon the people that were watching and crucifying him and then forgiveness in the same breath. They're guilty and yet I want to forgive them. He hangs on the cross and displays more compassion in his pinky finger than most of us have in our entire bodies. You see, while Jesus was not treated at all like an earthly king, he showed compassion beyond any we had ever seen prior or any after him. We could easily say that this is what we should do. We should be more like Jesus, more compassionate to others. And indeed, that is true. But I think we have to go a little bit deeper and understand our own need for compassion by the King of Kings. If you continue to look on in verses 35 and thir- through 38, you see the humility of this king is incomparable and unmatched. Kingly positions in the Old Testament to the present have often been entailed by men who are far from humble and far from kingly and far from kind. A few of them have bouts with humility at times. David comes to mind as he uh, commits adultery with Bathsheba, but then goes on to repent. And we see Psalm 51, this great humility of King David. But certainly God uses him But even David, at the end of his life, would struggle to finish well and finish strong, to display the kind of humility that we see in Jesus on the cross. We're told that in the midst of selling of his clothes, the sneering of the people and the signage above his head, that this king said nothing to retaliate. He has been beaten, he's been bruised, he's been abused, and yet nothing to defend himself. Now, our human nature is to retaliate when someone does something to us. We have to fight that. And you don't have to teach it. I've got young kids. They know that you hit me, I'm coming after you. I'm going to retaliate as quickly as I can. I think about football when I think about retaliation, particularly college football. Now, you put a bunch of young men in protective padding, and you turn them loose with a ball and watch retaliation happen. The defensive guy hits an offensive guy. Well, the next time they're on defense, we're getting them. We're after them. And I'm also an Auburn fan. And every Auburn fan remembers the famous kick six. Now, every Alabama fan in here just went, oh, no, not again. But the kick six where where Saban asks for that one second and then goes for the field goal, Auburn catches it, runs it 107 yards for the touchdown to win the game. And what was the phrase out of every Alabama fan's mouth? Just wait till next year. 
Oh, and you got us, by the way. Very well done. You got us. But every time Auburn wins or Alabama wins, the team says, just wait till next year. We'll get them next year. There's retaliation. There's revenge. Jesus, he hung on the cross naked in front of his family and friends. No retaliation was made. No revenge. His justice was the eternal throne in heaven that no one could envision but he himself. And then the real kicker of the whole thing, the forgiveness of this king and his work completed. We come to the ultimate act of a true king, the absolution of sin and the acceptance of a sinner into the kingdom. I told you Luke's point of view would come back to this, but we see these two criminals on the cross on each side of Jesus. And let's look at the first criminal. You know people like this. They deal with suffering by trying to make a deal with God. Right and wrong, good and bad are of no relevance to this thief because he's out to save his own skin. He might even be willing to believe in Jesus if Jesus can get him off the cross. It's a matter of convenience, and he's willing to take anyone who can get him down from there. He, is what, he has what John Piper, the great theologian and pastor, calls carjack theology. You all have a car and a jack in your car, right? Some of us don't even know where that is. I know. You've never used it. You never had to. But thank goodness it's there, right? Because when we need it, we get stuck on the side of the road. We find that car jack and we, we have to change our tire. But then when we're done, we put that jack right, where, right back where it was and we don't think about it until we need it again. That's that criminal's, the first criminal's mindset. That's his theology. Jesus, I need you to be my carjack. I need you to, Jesus, I need you to carjack me off the cross. I need you to use your carjacking abilities to get me off the cross so that I don't have to suffer anymore. Or we might say, Jesus, I need you as my carjack to get me out of the sickness to get me out of this crummy job, to get me out of this financial mess, to get me out of this disastrous relationship. And there's no spirit of repentance, humility, penitence, or brokenness. Only the possibility of what Jesus can do for me. And then you contrast that with this second thief. The one I would say Luke would desire for all of us to be in this situation. First, he's not sucked in by the railings of the other guy. He stands his ground, and we too will have to do the same. When people speak of our God and say, why did God allow this plane to run into a building and kill 2,000 people? Why did God allow entire villages to be slaughtered in El Salvador? Why does a huge earthquake devastate an entire country, killing hundreds of thousands? This thief is not deceived by all of that talk. He's repentant of his condition Do you not fear God, he says to the other thief? It's implying he fears God. There's a healthy fear of God. God was real to him, and he submitted to that fact. It's fitting that sinful creatures bow before God in holy fear instead of railing against God as if a rebel ant should kick against the foothills of Mount Everest and demand that it be flattened so that he could walk across. This thief admitted his condition And then he'd done wrong. Verse 41, we are punished justly, he says, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He accepted his just punishment as deserved. This was the real test as many confess their sins and humbly ask for forgiveness. Yet when trouble comes, 
we question why it is that God would allow it to happen to us. We get angry at him. Job says, shall I not accept the good with the bad? This thief acknowledges Jesus' righteousness as well. This man, he says, has done nothing wrong. We've done it wrong and we deserve this. He's done nothing wrong. The first thief only cared if Jesus would drive the getaway car. The second thief wanted Jesus' love. He wanted Jesus to care about him and Jesus did indeed care and want him to follow him. Not only does he admit Jesus' righteousness, he admits he is the king. In verse 42, he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Only kings have kingdoms. And while Jesus was suffering, he had the mark of a king. And then in that same verse, this thief pleads for help. Remember me, Jesus. Remember me as the king. I said before, they both sought salvation, but oh, how differently they sought it out. Save me for my own good looks a lot different than save me for your glory. Jesus gives this thief the ultimate assurance, a promise that he would be with him in paradise, not tomorrow, not next week, but today. A promise of salvation. The work on the cross had become complete. Paul tells us in the epistle reading today that we are reconciled to him by the cross. The work of the cross is no less today than it was on that day. And the promise to you and me, if we acknowledge him in the same way that second thief did, is that Christ is the king. And his phrase should resonate loud and clear with us. You will be with me in paradise. But the question comes for us today. Is he your king? The king of your heart and not just the king of convenience. Is he the king, the true king that you're willing to love and serve no matter what it might be or where he might lead you to go? Is he your king? Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.